So I promised you probably a, a couple months ago that I was going to eventually get to the book of the Revelation and uh, share from it. And so today is going to be sort of an introductory message on that. <clears throat> the title, though, is The Blessing of Obedience. Now, why would a discussion about the book of the Revelation be titled The Blessing of Obedience? Okay, how many of you did your homework and actually read the first few chapters? Don't raise your hand. Read the first few chapters of the book of the Revelation. Because if you did, it would be an obvious answer. <clears throat> the unveiling of Yeshua the Messiah. Verse 3 of the book of Revelation is, Blessed, blessed are the reader and hearers of the words of this prophecy, provided they obey the things written in it, for the time is near. This is the only book in all of Scripture that says if you read and hear its words, you'll be blessed with one provision, that you obey the things written in it. But, but Rovacek, I thought that the book of the Revelation was just a bunch of dreams and it's talking about crazy things and, and the Antichrist and 666 and all this stuff. What, what, how can I obey? <clears throat> God said that the, the key to the blessing of this book is obedience. So as we move through the book of the Revelation, I want you to ask in your mind, God, how can I obey you in what I'm hearing? The book of the Revelation is not about, I know more than the next guy about, you know, prophecy and about the future. It is a book of instruction. It is a book of, of clear um, exhortation. It is a book <clears throat> that is meant for all of the body of Messiah throughout all time since Yeshua has come. But the crescendo of the importance of being obedient to the book of the Revelation is more and more critical as we get closer to his coming. All right. With that as an introduction, let's go before Avinu. <clears throat> Adonai, please show us your ways. Teach us your paths. Lead us in your truth. And teach us, for you are the God of our salvation. You're the God of our deliverance. You're the God of truth. And it's only truth that will set us free. And on you we wait. We sit in awe at your feet and hear from you. So, <clears throat> what is apocalyptic literature? Because the book of the Revelation is considered an apocalyptic piece of literature. We know that nothing in the Word of God is literature. <laughs> but if you're going to define it, you know, from a worldly sort of, not, not worldly, but a, a um, literary perspective, it's considered an apocalyptic piece. And all of the apocalyptic pieces of <clears throat> truth in Scripture have unifying principles about it. Typically, apocalyptic literature is, you know, reveals the unseen world. How many of you know that there is an unseen world? Right? There are things going around us going on around us that <clears throat> unless we're tuned in, we have no clue. But those things influence us and every single person on the face of this planet every single minute of every single day. So apocalyptic literature is a, is a doorway into the unseen world as, as it pertains to how it impacts us in this world. <clears throat> God lives on such a higher dimension than us, right? 
but he enters into our world and there is a dimension that our puny dimension of of four you know a dimensionality of four things right um, space and time that is so far beyond our ability to comprehend it's outside of time typical apocalyptic literature is highly symbolic <clears throat> there's a lot of symbolism a lot of visions a lot of things that um, unless we're careful we can misinterpret and these symbols are repeating patterns and visions that must be carefully and precisely interpreted and what is Robichek's law of hermeneutics uh, y'all been around me long enough what is it thank you Gene somebody's paying attention Robichek's law of hermeneutics is scripture interprets scripture don't come to me taking a verse out of of a book and saying God's given you a revelation of that <clears throat> if you can't find the pattern of that revelation over and over again in scripture you know that that saying text without context is pretext I can't tell you how many times I was in the pews listening to a preacher and they picked one one verse and spend an hour teaching about that verse and I'm like what what just happened who was he talking to where was he why did he share that verse and it just you know which is why we're usually here till you know late because I never give you one verse I always talk about you know the entire chapter around it <clears throat> an emphasis on events at the end of days is also part of apocalyptic literature um, as God knows the end from the beginning the word revelation <clears throat> in the Greek is the word apocalypsis hence the apocalyptic literature right but it's interesting because when we think of apocalypse we think of the end of the world we think of chaos we think of nuclear bombs we think of Russia and China we think of all sorts of things but apocalypsis actually means the unveiling that's it it's an unveiling what does it mean to unveil you know <clears throat> in a wedding right a, a bride has a veil over her face and especially in Jewish weddings the the groom is not allowed to see the face of the bride before the wedding God forbid it's tantamount to uh, being stoned in, in the Jewish right but there's a veil and when the veil is lifted off there's an unveiling there's a revelation there is you see something that you didn't see before and so let's dive into the first few verses of the book of the Revelation <clears throat> chapter 1 verse 1 this is the okay so we already have a perspective we're about to learn what this is this this book of prophecy this letter that was distributed to seven congregations <clears throat> is the unveiling the revelation which God gave to who Yeshua it is the unveiling that God gave to Yeshua what does that mean I thought Yeshua knows everything the unveiling that was given to Yeshua was the mission that he had his mission was to unveil the redemption plan of God in a way in details that we had not understood before so that he could show his servants 
what must happen very soon. <clears throat> Anybody know when the book of Revelation, sorry about my, is this getting on anybody's nerves? My, my voice? Good, because it's getting on my nerves. <clears throat> what year was the book of the Revelation written? Yeah. No? Actually later. It's probably in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, mid 90s. Right? So, <clears throat> the unveiling, the beginning of this redemption plan of God was already unveiled through Yeshua. And who are the servants that Yeshua <clears throat> wanted to show or open up even further this, this unveiling? Us. He communicated it by sending his angel to his servant, Yohanan, John, <clears throat> who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah, as much as he kind of felt like doing. No? No. He bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Yeshua that, that Yeshua gave through the angel through this series of visions and revelations to what he saw. And then it says the scripture we've already read, blessed are the reader and hearers of the words of this prophecy, provided they obey the things written in it, <clears throat> for the time is near. So that word revelation, that unveiling, it's, it's the unveiling. What is he unveiling? Well, we're going to find out. <clears throat> and that word or that phrase, for the time is near, <clears throat> there's been much taught about the, um, the imminency of God, the imminency of Yeshua's return. To expect it any minute, for the time is near. That's actually not what that Greek phrase says. It is kairos igus, not chronos igus. Chronos is time, right? Chronometry, time, watch, right? This is kairos egos. Kairos is the word for seasons. And egos is the Greek word for flowing quickly. So what is he saying here? <clears throat> that time is going to fly by. Don't waste a minute. Obey the things written in this book. Don't put off being obedient. Your life and others' lives depend on it. <clears throat> he says, from Yohanan to the seven messianic communities <clears throat> in the province of Asia, grace and shalom to you from the one who is, who was, and who is coming, from the sevenfold spirit before his throne, and from Yeshua the Messiah, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the earth's kings, <clears throat> to him, the one who loves us, who has freed us from our sins, at the cost of his blood, who has caused us to be a kingdom that is koanim, priests, for God, his Father. So first things first, right? Yeshua, Yeshua, Yeshua. To him be the glory and the rulership forever and ever. Amen. We want to cut chase to the good stuff, right? We, we want to go to who's the dragon and what's the beast and what's the meaning of the 666. We, we want to go past go all the way to, to boardwalk, right? No. Uh-uh. This is about Yeshua. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him including those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the land will mourn him. 
The book of the Revelation contains <clears throat> hundreds of allusions to scriptures of the Tanakh. Hundreds. <coughs> Some are very clear allusions to those scriptures. <clears throat> Some are not so clear. There isn't actually a direct quote. But one of the books that is so important in, in the hermeneutics of the book of the Revelation is the book of Daniel. Scripture interprets scripture. And Daniel in the, in the seventh chapter says this, I kept watching the night visions when I saw coming with the clouds of heaven someone like a son of man. Almost word for word. A quote from Daniel. <clears throat> he approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. Right? What did we just read? To him was given rulership, glory, and kingdom, so that all peoples, nations, and languages would serve him. His rulership is an eternal rulership that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. <clears throat> A prophecy of Messiah that was reproduced in the very opening of the book of the Revelation. When was Daniel written? Approximately. 600 BCE, BC. <coughs> what about that part that says they will mourn him? Pretty much directly out of Zechariah 12. And here's where I want to bridge over to something that I, is, is absolutely critical as we move into understanding what the book of the Revelation is. Zechariah 12 says, when that day comes, anybody know what that day is? The day of the Lord. Adonai will defend those living in Jerusalem. On that day, even someone who stumbles will be like David, and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of Adonai before them. When that day comes, I will seek to destroy all nations attacking Jerusalem. That's the day that this first chapter of the book of Revelation is talking about. How do we know that? And I will pour out on the house of David and on those living in Jerusalem a spirit of grace and prayer. And they will look to me whom they pierced. They will mourn him for him as one mourns for an only son. They will be in bitterness on his behalf like the bitterness for a firstborn son. When that day comes, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, mourning like that for Hadad Rimon in the Megiddo Valley. So already what we know about the book of the Revelation is <clears throat> that unless we really read Daniel and Zechariah and various others, I'll point out, in parallel with the book of Revelation, you're going to misinterpret pretty much everything in this book. And more importantly, if you take a step back and say, what is Zechariah talking about? Which people? What city? What region of the world? He's talking about Jerusalem. He's talking about the world coming against the Jewish people in Jerusalem. Why? Why is this the world coming against this little piece of dirt in the middle of nowhere? And this little group of people that just want to mind their own business and, and create good stuff. One-tenth of one percent of the world's population. What? Why? Amen. His reputation. That name is his reputation. 
But as we expound on that even more, <clears throat> if, if the world and the enemies of God can get rid of Jerusalem, destroy it, and, and destroy the Jewish people, like they did try to do 2,000 years ago, Messiah, where is he coming to? Where is he going to land? The Revelation. <clears throat> Why do I call it the Revelation? Everybody calls it Revelation or the book of Revelation. It is the unveiling. So you're going to hear me call it the Revelation, the unveiling. The end of verse 7, yes, amen. I am the A and the Z, Alpha and Omega, Aleph Vitoth, says Adonai. <clears throat> God of heaven's armies, the one who is, who was, and who is coming. What is that an allusion to? Who's, who's, is, who is this God? It's a God that was the same yesterday, today, and forever. That phrase in the Greek, one who is, who was, and who is coming, <clears throat> the concept of that is not an actual physical was, is, and is coming. The concept of that, in if you really look at it, is I exist out of time. And that's exactly how God described himself in the third book of Exodus. When Moshe said, yo, God, when I appear before these people, and boy, do I know these people, they're going to ask, who, who do I say that you are? What, what is your name? The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what, what's his name? What am I to tell them? And God said to Moshe, Eye asher eye. I am that I am. It could also be translated, I was that I was, or I will be that I will be. You tell them, Aye sent me. When Yeshua was being argued with and <clears throat> and they said, Abraham we know, Moshe we know, who are you? Yeshua said, before Abraham was, I am. This is the God we're talking about in the book of the Revelation. Not some new creation that happened 2,000 years ago. Not some new religion. <clears throat> and what we have to understand is if we don't put our Hebraic hat on and stand on Mount Zion in Yerushalayim and understand the world and every prophecy in the book of the Revelation or any book of the Bible, from any other perspective, we are going to misinterpret. And so <clears throat> if you Google the book of Revelation or end times, right? I've said this before. Uh, last days, end of days, 666, you know, all that. How many hits do you get? Yeah. Well, the last I did, it was a few couple months ago, there was 20 million hits on Google. And if you scroll through those 20 million hits, you'll get about 20 million different interpretations of the book of the Revelation. And that's sad. Because we're not ready. If you can't interpret Revelation, <clears throat> I'm stealing part of my message. If you aren't able to correctly interpret Revel the book of the Revelation, you will not be able to correctly apply it. If you think that applying it comes first, which most everybody does. And so I don't want to get too heady or too <clears throat> um, I don't know, 
theological, but we're going to look at all the different ways. And if you take these 20 million perspectives, <clears throat> most, of them, most of them can be fit into one of these few ways of seeing the book of the Revelation. <clears throat> the first, and really the most common, believe it or not, is the idealistic or the symbolic. And so it, it considers the book of the Revelation to not refer to any actual people or events. There's nothing tangible in the book of Revelation according to this mode of interpreting. It's all an allegory of spiritual life and the spiritual path, the ongoing struggle, and can be applied to any believer at any time in history. Everything in all 22 chapters of the book of the Revelation. Now guess what? There is some truth in that. Everything in the book of the Revelation from the first to the last chapter can be applied to anyone at any time. And there is a lot of allegory. So if you interpret it strictly, you'll miss it. But does this not refer to actual people and events? Silliness. Preterist. How many of you know what the word preterist is? At some time, right? Sounds like a bad word, a weird word, but it actually isn't. <clears throat> preterist is, is a, 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 an understanding of Scripture whereby most of the New Testament prophecies are related to events that took place before and during the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. That nothing prophetic, especially in the book of Revelation, talks about anything beyond what happened when the temple was destroyed. So it's mostly their interpretation of the book of the Revelation is referring to the events of that first century. <clears throat> And, and really, this is entirely, according to the Preterist, a book that describes the spiritual struggle of those first century believers. And there's a problem with that, because a lot of it talks about the return of Yeshua, and he hadn't returned yet. But a lot of what we read is particularly um, pertinent to those who began this journey with Yeshua, who set the foundation for what we do today. Y'all there? We good? Is this too heady? Am I putting you to sleep? <clears throat> the next way to interpret it is what's called the historicist, that the book of Revelation is basically an outline of church history from Pentecost to the second coming. That if you follow everything in the book of the Revelation, it basically historically goes through step by step the prophecy of what things are going to happen. And uh, <clears throat> days and calculations are symbolic of years. Um, and it progresses to the climax of this second coming. And guess what? There is a lot of history in that. But the book of the Revelation is not a book of history. It is a book that helps us to know what to do. And hence, the admonition, obedience. You can't be obedient to history. It's a, it's a nebulous topic. You have to be obedient to commands, to instructions, to exhortation. And so, the final and common in many of the sort of um, 21st century <laughs> interpretations, and especially in the, um, the interpretation that looks at, the, you know, when the rapture comes, is it pre-millennial, is it mid-millennial, is it post-millennial? The, the dispensational uh, perspective is a futurist perspective. They believe that 
the book of the Revelation describes future events um, only and at the end of the age. Well, guess what? None of these perspectives are correct, and all of them have truths in it. Okay? Very important. So why am I sharing all this? Is because the book of the Revelation is, number one, a book that most people don't even touch. Right? Maybe out of fear, maybe out of ignorance, maybe out of doesn't apply to me because it's all about when Jesus comes back and it ain't happening for a while or I don't really care. <clears throat> or they get into the book of the Revelation and they interpret it with their Western Anglo-Saxon hat on in the middle of New York or Texas or Georgia, right? So we talked about the book of the uh, Revelation's author is John. Um, whoever this John is, there's actually a debate as to whether or not it's, it's John, the writer of the gospel and, and the epistle, the letters, um, amongst people that, you know, <clears throat> get paid a lot more than me to think about these things. Um, but all I know is it's John. It's Yohanan. And he got sent to the island of Patmos, it says in the book of the Revelation, because he made a major mistake. His mistake was he preached the gospel. I said this, the cart before the horse. Application before interpretation is common and from a spiritual standpoint, deadly. We must interpret the book of the Revelation before we can apply it. So what we're going to do is we're going to interpret it. Then we'll think about how we can be obedient to it rather than apply it. You know, most people come to the book of the Revelation with a preconceived notion of what it's about, what it's going to look like, what the last days are, what they've been taught from the pulpit, and they try to fit everything into that perspective. And if you do that, you are dead before you start. Focus of all last day scripture, and, and I've said it, but I'm going to say it again and again. Over and over, and <coughs> we read it from the first chapter, God points us to Israel as the focal point of the last days and of redemptive prophecy. Over and over, God associates the last days with the restoration of national Israel. And over and over, God gives us glimpses of the last day's scenario, but always through the lens of his covenant people, the Jews and his holy city, Jerusalem. So the interpretation of last day's prophecy cannot be understood without first fully grasping and building upon the pattern set in motion within the scriptural and historical context of the Jewish people. Did everybody hear that? Are you all still here? Because it's quiet in this Holy Ghost church. <laughs> it is serious, but this is just the intro. Wait till we get to the real stuff. <clears throat> the single most important pattern that is repeatedly built upon in Scripture, and particularly in the book of the Revelation, is this unfolding of the Passover Exodus event. And even the Passover Exodus event is an unfolding of the struggle of man and the redemption of God by his grace. We can't do it. He does it. Amen? <clears throat> so we talked about it, that it rarely quotes directly from the Tanakh, but almost every verse alludes to or echoes patterns, ideas, visions, and illusions in the Tanakh. Everybody see that? There's going to be a quiz at the end. <laughs> These are the number of allusions and quotes in the individual books of the Tanakh. How many of you know what the Tanakh is? Right? Torah, 
Nevi'im, Ketuvim, right? That's the <clears throat> three words, taking the first couple of letters of each word and put it together. It's what people mistakenly call the Old Testament, as if somehow it's no longer valid. <clears throat> so you can see that there's 57 allusions to the Torah in terms of the first five books of the Torah, <clears throat> 56 to the Ketuvim, the writings, and, then, and 235 allusions and, and indirect quotes from the Nevi'im, the prophets. Most coming from Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Exodus. Now, here's, here's something really fascinating. If you really want to outline the book, and, and I wouldn't necessarily encourage this because it gets you too much into your head, <clears throat> but there are 11 kind of things, and I know that's not like 11. It's supposed to be seven, Robichak, come on. Seven is the, you know, the, the number that we, everything is. Well, it's true. There are so many sevens in the book of the Revelation. But there are 11 topics if you go through <clears throat> the book of the Revelation. I'm not going to go through them individually yet. But there's also a lot of sevens. There's seven seals. There's seven trumpets. There's seven bowls of wrath. <clears throat> but here's what I want to point out. How many of you have heard of the chiastic scriptural interpretation? Chiasms. If you look through scripture over and over and over again, whether it's a, a set of verses or an entire book or an entire chapter or entire revelation, <clears throat> there are these structures within the book, uh, books of the Bible that are what's called chiastic. And what does chiastic mean? <clears throat> the beginning of those structures you know, shares a, a revelation, which is pretty much identical to the last of that structure. The second is identical to the second to last. The third is identical to the third to last, and so forth. But within this chiastic structure, <clears throat> what it does is it points you to the middle of it. And if you look at a lot of the, the sages and the rabbis, um, this is something that is very common in helping us to interpret scripture, not interpret scripture, but to focus us on what God is trying to tell us. And here's the fascinating thing. <clears throat> if we were to divide this in some sort of chiastic structure, that middle portion is chapter 12 of the book of the Revelation. And chapter 12 is the key. It is the absolute key to understanding the entire book of the Revelation. And it is the middle point of this chiastic structure. It talks about some of the important characters. But what it talks about is the battle, the fight. For redemption. And it, in order to understand the rest of the book of the Revelation, you have to understand what goes on in the 12th chapter. So I'm going to introduce some of the characters and then I'm going to read from the 12th chapter. Y'all okay? okay? You don't have anywhere to go, right? So the characters of the book of the Revelation. <clears throat> the first character that we see in chapter 12, we'll read in a second, but one of the first characters is this woman. Next we hear about a son, a male child, and then a dragon. And then we'll hear about a beast and a great harlot. and then the false prophet. Those are essentially the characters of the book of the Revelation. And in order to understand what God is trying to tell us 
and how to be obedient to him in that we have to understand who these characters are, what they represent, and we have to understand them so clearly. Now, before we get into the book of the Revelation, what I want to ask of you is forget everything you've learned. Forget it. It might come up and it might go, oh, yeah, I remember. I, yeah, that's true. We're going to read the scripture and we're going to interpret scripture based on previous scripture and look at it from, a, from the lens that I talked about. But you got to get rid of it because there's so much junk when it has to do come, you know, when it comes to the book of the Revelation. So Revelation 12. <clears throat> now a great sign was seen in heaven. That word sign in, in the Greek is uh, something that represents something. It's not necessarily like a sign like, you know, a, a, a um, lunar eclipse or a solar eclipse. That word sign is something that signifies or reveals something. Now, a great signification was seen in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, under her feet the moon, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and about to give birth, and she screamed in the agony of labor. Who's this talking about? Okay, so that's, that's one theory. The church. We've heard that. Huh? Any other theories? Good. I'm just I'm asking you to come up with something new. Yeah. So it has been alternately identified as Israel, as the church, or Israel who becomes the church. If you look at it from a supersessionist, a replacement theology perspective. Um, but we're going to look at scripture to tell us who this is. Genesis 37. He, Yosef had another dream which he told his brothers. Here, I had another dream, and there were the sun, the moon, and 11 stars prostrating themselves before me. Who's he talking about? The 12 tribes. Why does it say 11 stars? Because he's the 12th. The 12 tribes of Israel, not the church, not anything else. It's talking about the 12 tribes of Israel. And I can, I can bring out other scriptures and so forth. <clears throat> it says, she gave birth to a son, a male child, the one who will rule all the nations with a staff of iron. By the way, there is a certain part of Christianity that believes that this mother is actually Mary. Right? And so, and they give proof this fifth verse. She gave birth to a son, a male child, the one who will rule all the nations with a staff of iron. But her child was snatched up to God in his throne. Why is it that when God shares something from a vision standpoint in allegory, <clears throat> we decide we want to take one thing out and take it literally. Why? Because it fits with our agenda. Sure, sure. So, again, Scripture interprets Scripture. Was Mary part of the 12 tribes? Absolutely. She was a Jew. She was a Jewish. Right? Did she give birth to Yeshua? Absolutely. But she gave birth to Yeshua because she was of the lineage of Abraham, 
Isaac, and Jacob. And she was of the lineage of David and so forth, right? So we have to be careful not to take something out and interpret it based on the message we want to get across. But what is the message God wants to get across? What's he talking about? He ruled all the nations with a staff of iron. Who's, who's the son? Of course. And what does it mean <clears throat> that he was snatched up to God and his throne? He was raised from the dead. And he's sitting at the right hand of God. Psalm 2 says, I will proclaim the decree. Adonai said to me, you are my son. Today I became your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. The whole wide world will be your possession. You will break them with an iron rod, shatter them like a clay pot. You are my son. Who's he talking to? That's a prophecy of Yeshua. The dragon. Verse 3, another sign, another um, opening up of something that, that helps us to see the bigger picture, signifies something, was seen in heaven. There was a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven royal crowns. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of heaven and threw them down to earth. It stood in front of the woman about to give birth so that it might devour the child the moment it was born. Who's the dragon? How do you know? Okay, that's that's good, but that's, that's an interpretation I'm asking you, how do you know that the dragon is talking about Satan? Okay, so there's somewhere in Scripture that talks about a third of the angels fell with, with Lucifer, right? So that's, that's one supporting thing, but could he be talking about something else? Well, it just so happens that six verses later, he tells who the dragon is. The great dragon was thrown out, that ancient serpent, also known as the devil and Hasatan, the adversary, the deceiver of the whole world. He was hurled down to the earth and his angels were hurled down with him. What else is important? So we, we see three characters right off the bat. We see this woman who, based on at least one scripture, if not many scriptures, we're talking about Israel. Israel gives birth to her Messiah, which is Yeshua. And now we introduce this third, you know, person, this third character, and that is the dragon. And, and Daryl gave away the, the mission of the dragon, but what is the mission of the dragon? Again, chapter 12. <clears throat> when the dragon saw that he had been hurled down to the earth, he went in pursuit of the woman. Now notice, we could get lost in the weeds here. What does it mean he was hurled down to earth? When was he hurled down to earth? What was it? And those are all important questions. But I want to focus on the big picture here for a second. Because unless we interpret the big picture, we can't understand the details or apply it. He went in pursuit of the woman who had given birth to the male child. What does that mean? So what, if we're interpreting the woman correctly, the dragon's mission is to pursue Israel, to pursue the woman. Even though she had already given birth, he tried to pursue her and kill her before she gave birth. He tried to destroy the child right after he, she gave birth, Right? But now, somehow at this point, he's hurled down to the earth. He went in pursuit of the woman. 15, 
The serpent spewed water like a river out of its mouth after the woman in order to sweep her away in the flood. Verse 17, the dragon was infuriated over the woman and went off to fight the rest of her children, those who obey God's commands and bear witness to Yeshua. Who are those? more about the beast. And the whole earth followed after the beast in amazement. Here's another character. Is this Satan? It's not, he's not calling him the dragon. He's calling the beast. This is a fourth character. The whole earth, fall well, we're going to find, figure that out. What I'm doing now is setting up the characters. I can tell you the answer to that is, if you listen to most people, they'll say yes. If you read the Bible, no, it's not the Antichrist. That was pretty arrogant, huh, if you read the Bible. <laughs> yes, sir. Could be, but we'll find out. So the whole earth followed after the beast in amazement. They worshiped who? The dragon, because he had given his authority to the beast. They're two separate entities. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who can fight, make war against him? The Greek word is actually it. Now, so the dragon gives authority to the beast, the second evil character. <clears throat> and so the beast essentially has the same purpose as the dragon. And what is that purpose? And the body of Messiah. So remember, if we look back in scripture, and we will do this, it's going to be a really fascinating ride, folks. This is just, we're just scratching the surface. Every time a beast is discussed in scripture and prophecy, and especially in Daniel, it's talking about a kingdom. A kingdom. Now remember, <clears throat> the unveiling is... How is the spiritual realm interacting with the earthly realm? <coughs> Excuse me. Revelation 17 introduces a, another evil character called the harlot, or in the complete Jewish Bible in the TLV, it says the whore. Sorry if I'm offending anybody's ears. Then came one of the angels with the seven bowls, and he said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great whore who is sitting by many waters. The kings of the earth went whoring with her, and the people living on earth have become drunk from the wine of her whoring. He carried me off in the spirit to a desert, he goes on to say, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast filled with blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. So here we have the harlot, another woman in this, sitting on a beast, or the beast, who has the same look as the dragon, seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and glittered with gold, precious stones and pearls. In her hand was a gold cup filled with the obscene and filthy things produced by her whoring. So we know now that the woman and the beast are somehow connected. The woman sits on the beast. And the scripture goes on to say, On her forehead was written a name with a hidden meaning 
Bavo the great, mother of horrors and of the earth's obscenities. I saw the woman drunk from the blood of God's people. Wow. What does this tell you? That this woman, this harlot, has the same mission as the dragon and the beast. So somehow they're aligned. Yes, sir. <laughs> could it be? Um, could it be something other than Rome that maybe includes Rome? Sorry, getting ahead of myself here. And then the final character is this false prophet. A, you know, an additional character in Revelation 16, it says, And I saw three unclean spirits that looked like frogs. They came from the mouth of who? The dragon. The dragon. The dragon. The dragon. From the mouth of the beast and from the mouth of the false prophet. So now we have a fourth character that are linked they are miracle-working, demonic spirits which go out to the kings of the whole inhabited world to assemble them for the war of the great day of Adonai Tzavahot. Look, he says, I am coming like a thief. How blessed are those who stay alert and keep their clothes clean so that they won't be walking naked and be publicly put to shame. So, whatever these three are, they will be in manifestation in the day of the Lord when Yeshua has said, I am coming. Okay? And finally, in Revelation 19, it talks about this false prophet and the beast. <coughs> I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to do battle with the rider of the horse Got a lot to fill in, you know, here. And his army, but the beast was taken captive, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the miracles which he had used to deceive those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped his image. The beast and the false prophet were both thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were killed with a sword that goes out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorge themselves on their flesh. Remember, we're talking about Yohanan minding his own business on the island of Patmos when the angel comes and says, sit down. I got some things I need to show you. We don't know over how long this happens, but he's sitting there seeing these visions and trying feverishly to write it down and to write down what the angel is saying. So here we have the characters. Israel is the woman. Yeshua is the son, the male child. The dragon is Hasatan. The beast is, I, I submit to you, is a kingdom fully controlled and used by the dragon. The great harlot, something that all the kings of this world have given themselves to. And we'll explore what all these are. And the false prophet, some sort of central individual aligned with the beast, fully controlled by the dragon. Y'all here? Okay. So that was it. It's 1235. I got I to gotta walk in love with y'all. And if I talk anymore, I'm going to lose my voice completely. <clears throat> I have a cough drop. No, but seriously, my, my goal today was to wet your whistle. <laughs> Did I do it? Yes. <laughs> whistle wet? All right. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just here to, to get you interested. Now, here's what I want of you. Read. Empty your mind of previous preconceptions and just begin to read. Meditate. Seek God. And if you have a concordance or a, 
or some sort of study Bible, <clears throat> when you see a scripture and it gives you a little footnote to look at other scriptures, go do it. Don't assume anything, but go do it. Go read those other scriptures, and, and we'll talk about it some more. Um, March 11th. March 4th, I'm going to talk about Purim probably, so... <clears throat> You got one month to study up. Amen? Amen. Everybody, please stand and uh, join hands, join arms, go across the aisles. Where did my bride go? I can't do this without my bride. Where did she go? She went that way? Oh, that way. She's with you in spell. Okay. <clears throat> All right. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Help us to know your word, to know your truth. And uh, to seek you first and foremost. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord lift up his, may the Lord's, I know it in Hebrew. Why do I do? May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Prince of Peace, our Shalom. Yisaharunai panavelecha veyasem lecha shalom Shabbat shalom y'all